Welcome to the Leadership Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Jono White. I'm the founder and principal consultant of Clarity. We are an Australian-based consultancy that works with leaders around the world, and our passion is to invest in people to become everything they're meant to be in order to fill the world with healthy organizations that people love to work for and customers line up to buy from. The goal of this podcast is to invest in you and your leadership. If you're just joining us for the first time, then feel free to check out consultclarity.org. That's our website, consultclarity.org. We have so many free resources on there. The most popular being our seven questions on leadership series. We've had more than 1,500 leaders from around the world in all different sectors give their in-depth answers on leadership, what books they love, what they found most challenging, uh, the most meaningful stories, how they how they structure their time through the day. That's free, so go and check it out. And we'd love to interview you about your leadership. I believe you have advice from your experience, your context, and your life so far that is important and can help other leaders. It's also a great way to give back. It's free to get involved, and you can do so by going to consultclarity.org forward slash seven dash questions dash interest, or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and fill out the form that pops up. We have a free resource for you on our website. It's called Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook. It has interviews with 10 world-class leaders, and you can go to consultclarity.org. It's right at the top and get that today. Uh, we also have a daily email that we send out to over 15,000 leaders, and that email contains the highlights, our best content from our podcasts, our blog, uh, my book, uh, the books that we're loving that are out there about leadership, it's also the best way to get access to our masterclasses and workshops before anyone else. And there's also exclusive and limited uh, special options just for subscribers. And you can subscribe by going to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe. Now, my gift to you is to work incredibly hard to provide the best leadership content I can to invest in you and your leadership. So if you're finding our content helpful, if you find this podcast helpful, then your gift to me uh, could be this. If you, if you do find it helpful, then write a review or rate our content and make sure you subscribe or follow. I can't emphasize enough how helpful that is. It really does help us to get the word out there so we can invest in more leaders to become everything they're meant to be. It also means a lot to me personally when people like you and people in our community share our content on social media. So if you do that, then please do look for me, Jono White, to tag me and look to tag Clarity uh, on whatever platform you're on. And our team, including me, I, I'm always looking to see when people have mentioned us so that I can engage with you. And also we look at sharing content. So if you if you write something about something we've done, there's also a good chance we'll share that with our followers. So if you could do that, that is a massive, massive help as we try to invest in as many leaders as we can around the world. Last of all, you can check out my book about how to deal with difficult people even if you hate conflict. It's called Step Up or Step Out. It's available on Amazon. You can just look up Step Up or Step Out John O. White, or you can go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and check it out there. I 
have coached leader after leader after leader and in more than 50% of the sessions, this topic comes up. How do I deal with this person? I'm finding it really difficult and, and I just want to find a way that doesn't blow up to do a really, just to have a difficult conversation, to lead them better. How do I do that? There's a three-step process that I outline in this book that I believe can help you. Okay, let's get into today's episode of the Leadership Conversations podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 17 of the Leadership Conversations podcast. I am your host, Jono White, founder and principal consultant of Clarity. And today's guest is Pablo Casati. Pablo is the chief supply chain officer for Godiva Chocolatier. Uh, and Pablo has nearly 30 years of food manufacturing and operations experience and a proven record of improving safety, quality, service, and costs. He started his career as an engineer building and designing food manufacturing processes. And now he's run large multi-facility operations for Pepsi, Dean Foods, Pinnacle Foods, Blue Apron, Ventura Foods, and now Godiva Chocolatier. Pablo, uh, welcome and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, John. <laughs> now, I, um, I am really interested, I, I guess, uh, you know, to be honest, the sector that you work in is one that I haven't had much experience working in myself, but I find it really, uh, really interesting for, for a number of reasons. So I'm personally just really looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, but to help listeners understand, I guess, a little bit about your role, uh, Chief Supply, you know, in, in your role as Chief Supply Chain Officer, um, and to understand Godiva Chocolate here, and maybe just get a picture of where you're based and what the sort of footprint looks like of the organization that you're, uh, that you're working for in your role. Can you give us a bit of a snapshot of those things? Sure. I mean, uh, you know, Godiva is a well-known uh, and, and probably the highest quality chocolate you can find out there. And uh, what's great about the company is it's global. And so I, I manage three separate regions, Americas, APAC, Asia Pacific, and uh, Europe and the Middle East, uh, EMEA. Uh, I have uh, heads of supply chains in each of the regions. And if you think about supply chain, right, it's the uh, it's the whole uh, it's it's the sourcing, uh, which is our procurement teams, the the making, which is our manufacturing teams, the 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 deliver, which is the logistics team, and then all the planning associated with making sure that I have the right chocolates at the right location, at the right places, at the right times. Um, and the other uniqueness about uh, Godiva is a true omni-channel approach. Mm. Uh, we have retail stores and cafes. We have, uh, we sell in uh, specialty markets such as, you know, your department stores, you'll find us. Um, additionally, we sell in food, drug, and mass mm. and club. Um, and we have our own e-commerce channel as well as sell on others, uh, e-commerce of other uh, organizations as well. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the word that comes to mind hearing you uh, unpack that is complex. <laughs> That sounds, that sounds very, very complex to me. Not having any experience in uh, in supply chain, that's the that's the word that comes to mind. But I'm looking forward to hearing you. Um, uh, I guess we're going to talk more broadly about leadership. But um, yeah, I just think it's amazing that you that you lead that and lead so many teams to. Yeah, I, I just think it's really incredible. Uh, so. Let's <laughs> let's talk about you a bit before before I uh, spend too much time just uh, asking 
asking questions uh, about uh, how on earth uh, supply chain works for uh, such a such a big organization. <laughs> I think it's very cool. Um, but tell us about Pablo, that your story, as far back as you want to go, the, the real moments that shaped you becoming who you are and doing what you're doing today. Sure. I mean, listen, I was born in Argentina, but grew up in the United States. So I was one when I came over and, uh, you know, uh, well, I always say my dad came over uh, because, uh, you know, he, 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 want, he, his brother was up here working in a factory and he, he had started his own business that didn't work out. And so he came up to the United States and figured he'd make some money and then come back to the uh, back to Argentina uh, and uh, came up here and realized he could make more money in the United States than he could owning his own and working at a factory than he could owning his own business in Argentina. Wow. Uh, I think my mom came up begrudgingly and still is here begrudgingly. But uh, <laughs> in the end, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm an immigrant. Uh, my my parents are immigrants, and you know we didn't. Uh, you know we grew up well in the United States, but uh, you know my mom sort of gave me that uh, idea that uh, you know we came here for a reason, and and we needed to do more. Mm. And my dad was always uh, you know worked six hours. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, ten hour shifts, uh, six days a week on third shift, uh, and so. I think I got the hard work efforts from my dad and the uh, nothing's ever good enough from my mom. So uh, it's a, I think I'm a combination of both. Um, that being said is, you know, I, I work in operations and in the heart of what we do is the manufacturing piece. Um, and, you know, I think of everyone that works in my organization, um, you know, there's somebody's dad, right? There's somebody's mm -hmm. mom, there's somebody's uncle, there's somebody's sister or brother. and um, those are tough jobs, and I want to make sure that uh, in, in the end it starts with uh, making sure that we create a work environment that is you know, safe so that everyone goes home safe. We make chocolate for a living. No one should ever get hurt making chocolate. Um, <laughs> but then someplace that they can enjoy and um, have fun um, and get great results at the same time, help be a part of something more than just clocking in and uh, going to work. I, I want people to bring their brains to work. I want people to bring their passion to work. Um, yeah, you know, no matter what job you do. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and so you, you've done uh, and worked in a lot of uh, really interesting organizations, reading up the, you know, the, the bio uh, earlier for you, there's some, there's some big names on there like Pepsi. And, uh, but for you, as you look back, um, what are some of the moments, you know, maybe as an older leader, you know, in the past maybe 10 or, or 20 years, are there any moments, or go further back if you want, that really come to mind that have really shaped you in your leadership to become who you are today? Yeah, I think there's a lot. <laughs> it's hard to parse <laughs> them all out. Um, certainly early on in my career when I was at Campbell Soup, I think, you know, the, you always get shaped by other leaders, right? I think that's the key. So I, I'll, I'll uh, tell you that I was brought to Campbell Soup by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Mike Dunn. And uh, at the time, I was uh, his maintenance manager, and then it became his operations manager, and eventually the product manager where I ran his Pace and Prego facility for him. Mm. And uh, he taught me how to, you know, uh, lean processes uh, and, and I say lean or continuous improvement, but really the key was engaging our operators and making mm -hmm. them a part of a solution, um, getting their ideas. And I always think, you know, it's if, if, if someone's working a job eight hours a day, 
10 hours a day, you know, that they know how to make things better. Um, and so a lot of what we need to do is just ask people and engage them and make them a part of being successful and, and making their jobs better. Because if their jobs are better, our jobs become better. So I think I learned that from Mike and Campbell Soup that, you know, it was, uh, it's critical to engage folks on the floor, engage the people that are doing the jobs, making sure that they're a part of the solution and giving the opportunity. I, I, at that team, I still remember I had a quality team there mm. made up of all operators. They did all the work and they were the most passionate team around quality that I've ever seen in my entire career. Wow. And then I think I, I've taken that, um, you know, throughout my career. Uh, and I would say, you know, it was going to Pepsi was great because, you know, Pepsi had, uh, I don't know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a $90 billion organization, you know, at the time. And so <laughs> you're, you're not really going to change Pepsi, but they had great processes and great tools, but the key was how do you scale engaging everybody? So, you know, I was a plant manager. I was initially their continuous improvement leader and, and, and tried to share that across the organization, became a plant manager for them where I basically took the tools and, you know, um, and embedded them in there with, you know, uh, making sure that we were engaging everybody in the organization. Um, and in a couple of years, and, and by using the tools, but more importantly than just using the tools, and I keep saying this, if uh, I say this to my team all the time, you, you can learn. Toyota manufacturing systems, you can learn Lean Six Sigma, you can learn continuous improvement, but the heart of it is engaging people in the process. Mm. Um, and if you can't get that, all those tools are like, uh, you know, it, I know I may know what a hammer is, it doesn't necessarily mean I know how to build a house. And so, <laughs> you know, to, to build a house correctly, you have to make sure you have a foundation, and that foundation is the culture of your organization. So by connecting the tools with the culture and, and teaching our teams how to continuously improve in Pepsi, we made huge performance leaps. You know, we took one of the worst performing plants and then two, two and a half years, it became uh, the, the plant of the year for Pepsi out of 80 plants. And wow. also we won best place to work, uh, which was a different award that we got from uh, Pepsi. Hmm. Uh, and I was really proud of that. Um, and then from there, I think I, I, it's been a lot of duplication in those processes. At Pinnacle, I actually got to build the, the, the lean processes with my team. And, uh, and that was exciting, too, uh, never losing fact of, of where we were and where we're going. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, those are a lot of the things that have shaped me uh, in the past. Yeah, I, I, uh, I love your focus on engaging people in the process because – uh, I think that is universal principle for leaders. I think in every part of leadership, it's. I, I just believe it's true where we, we don't engage people enough in the process. I feel like you can almost look at any leadership situation and if there's a high engagement in the process of uh, the stakeholders, you're more likely to win and if it's a lowering, you know, you're more likely to lose. But how to do that, and I think that's why leaders often struggle to do it, it's is knowing how to navigate that. So are there any stories that come to mind? Maybe it doesn't have to be of yours. It could be stories you've come across of, of others doing engaging their people in the process, um, or doing engagement with their people, or uh, stories from your time as a leader so far where you think, wow, that was a real win, uh, or that was a big turnaround, or that the way we in, the way we involved them or the way you know that leader I worked with involved 
our people in the process was a real key aha moment for you or just had a particularly meaningful uh, ring to it? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think uh, there's a, a dozen examples throughout my career. I, the, the one thing I'd tell you is, you know, and I always tell uh, the people who work for me is you got to your position uh, for a reason. Don't mm. assume that everyone who works for you understands what you know. Right. So yes. the first part is you've got to get rid of your bias to believe that someone should know something. Right. So just because someone's in that position doesn't mean they know everything, you know, and doesn't mm. mean they know everything they think you think they should know. So mm. one is you always have to set clear expectations for that person. And then, you know, if they can't deliver against those expectations, you should see that as a failure on yourself. Like, why aren't they delivering? How do I help them deliver? Mm. Um, and so I'll, I'll use an example. When I first became, when I took my first plant manager role at Pepsi, I had a, 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 a person who worked for me and, you know, I was told that they're not going to make it. They're not really good. You know, you need to watch that person. Whatsoever. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so I started setting expectations and not only setting expectations, but walking the walk. Right. So I, I expected them to be there when the line started up in the morning. So I showed up when the line started up and I would call them and say, hey, you know, what's going on? And they're like, okay, I'm not there. I'm like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. So <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's. And then we would walk the floor. I'd show up and then he'd give me an update as to what's going on. And then we'd walk the floor and I'd start setting higher level expectations about like organization and people and what we should be doing. And, and so, you know, by, by doing those things, he became an amazing person, like an amazing leader. And I was able to get the best out of that person by making sure that I was clear about what, what I needed from him. Mm. Um, and I, I don't think, and, and right now he's a very successful person. He's doing really well. I'm real proud of what he's done. And, yeah. and I learned from that experience that, Hey, you know, you can, anyone with who's capable, um, can get the job done if you set the right expectations and you help them uh, reach those expectations. And I've taken that from um, on every time, every every area that I've moved on to. Now, uh, you know, there are people who've, who have failed in my organiz organization uh, and, you know, it's unfortunate. And I always see that as a failure in myself too, but um, I've tried to make sure that I've given everyone the right expectations. Yes. And then when they weren't meeting them, letting them know and show them and so when they got to the end of that process, um, you know, they, they at least felt, or at least I hope they felt that, you know, they were given a fair shake at the, at the, at the, at the role. Yeah. I love that. I love uh, the idea of clear expectations. I, I love this, uh, this idea of no surprises and um, sort of a bit of a litmus test for leaders is, you know, when you walk into uh a meeting or you know and there's always the exceptions to the rule right there are those times where <laughs> something's going to be someone's going to be surprised for some reason but as much as you can if you've set like exactly what you said you set clear expectations and then you walk you walk the walk and actually help people uh know whether they're meeting those expectations what you get rid of is a lot of these big surprises that never really work out in anyone's favor no one really wins Instead, you're better off having these small conversations. How do you, I, I guess to break it down, what have you learned about setting expectations? What would you say to a leader listening who goes, I don't think I do that very well. How, could, how can people improve setting expectations with their people? 
Well, I don't think it's a once a year thing, right? So if you're waiting for the HR cycle and, uh, you know, saying, oh, it's, it's that annual review time and let me set expectations, those become, how do I put it? It's, uh, they become sort of like, well, let me give you these high level metrics that I expect you to deliver. Here's some big projects that I want you to do. And if you're waiting for once a year cycle, it, it, that's not really setting clear expectations. You know, I, I set regular one-on-ones with my team and a big part of what we talk about is how are they delivering what they're supposed to deliver? What are the key things that they need? What resources do they need to get done? Um, are they clear about what is important and what's not important? And, you know, and I'm also, um, you know, I, I hate to use the term, the gift of feedback, but <laughs> I give people a lot of feedback, you know, so if you're not meeting expectations, uh, I'm pretty clear about, uh, you know, whether you're meeting them or not meeting them, if you're, if, and look, I, I want to celebrate as much as possible as when we are meeting expectations, but, you know, we all need to be working on, I tell my boss too, is like that, you know, in general, I think I do a pretty good job. So like, you need to tell me when you don't think I'm doing a good job so I can uh, uh, recalibrate myself. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's an iterative process, right? You have to be consistent about it. You have to make sure that you're communicating on a regular basis and um, that lack of communication, if you don't have that communication, it's really on you as a person. Like that's the key thing to have is making sure that you're in a regular cadence to make sure that people are on track and trying to deliver because it's easy to go off the rails. And um, you want to make sure that if they do start going off the rails, you, you, you rectify the situation as fast as possible and get them back on track. Yeah, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head and I agree we need to stop thinking of these um, once a year or even the once a quarter, uh, you know, whatever the pattern is. We need to stop thinking about that and instead make it part of the regular one-on-one uh, and uh, and even more regular than that in, for some leaders who are walking the halls with their leaders or on the floor with their with their people is make it make it make it so that they know every day what the expectations are and whether they're meeting it in in small ways in those little conversations i think that's just a better way i, I think there's so many reasons that's a, a better process um i know that developing people is really something that you're very passionate about so can you speak a little bit to that and and i guess particularly what you've learned about how to really invest in people and develop the people in your team and in your organization and, and any, any real keys that you've learned or you've come across that you think are particularly, you know, really great levers that leaders can pull to really invest and develop the people in their team and in their organization. Yeah. I mean, I'll start by saying, um, you know, I think when you look back on, when I look back on my career, I'm not always, you know, there, there's certain things that I'm very proud of, um, and but most of the time they're not metric based. Most of the time they're the people that I feel I've left behind and made that organization stronger or even made that person stronger. Or, you know, recently I'll get a lot of people reach out to me on LinkedIn and, you know, just thank me from time to time and say, hey, I just wanted you to know I'm in this position. I, I just met, had lunch with a friend of mine who used to be a mechanic for me and now he's running an entire uh, supply chain operations for uh, a company on the west coast and wow. it just makes me excited that people uh, are able to you know move up and change and grow and 
that you were a part of that development. Uh, to me, that's the most exciting piece of it. Um, listen, on the development piece, I think, you know, uh, it, it's not formulaic. You know, I think you need mm. to learn each person. You need to learn what motivates them. Um, you need to let them uh, try and fail. And, yes. uh, you know, I, I, I had a, a boss once tell me, and it was Mike Dunn, the guy from Campbell Soup. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I let off on this. He told me this is what he wanted me to do. And I started going down my direction. And, and uh, I started telling him, well, later on, it didn't work out. And, and he goes, uh, oh, I knew it wasn't going to work out. I'm like, well, why didn't you try and stop me? He's like, uh, you're too hard-headed. There's no way I was going to stop you. <laughs> I figured it'd be better for you to learn the hard way. And, and I, I thought about that. It, it's kind of true, and I see this all the time. Sometimes you've got to, you know, it's got to be controlled, right? Like it's not, a, you can't let people fail big, but you, you certainly need to let them try small uh, experiments and, and not be successful or find, give them, you know, show them after that, oh, maybe there was a better way that you could have done this. And it's not... Uh, they're all teaching moments, and I think if you don't let people try and if you don't let them bring their own passion to it, um, they're not going to be as successful as you want. If you just tell them, "Hey, here's the cookie cutter approach that I need you to deliver," um, you know, it's like uh, it's like painting by numbers or or truly painting a piece of art. Uh, you know, you got to let people uh, go out of the line sometimes, and and you know. It, I always say this, like, especially in big operations, like you said before, like the dive was a big, complicated operation. Yeah. There's a thousand things we could do today to make this organization better. Um, you know, my, 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 my job is not to, is to prioritize the work and then let people do the things that are the biggest impact to the organization, but let them decide which ones are going to, they want to do. Like, I don't tell them, Oh, you have to go do this because it's going to save us this way. I mean, sometimes I'll come up with an idea myself and ask them about it, or put it on the list of stuff that we need to get done. But I want them to think of how do I make the biggest impact? And this, you know, if this is where they believe they can make the biggest impact, let them go do it. Because if you have passion around it, you're more likely to be successful. If if it's your boss telling you to go do something, you're less likely you you have an out if it doesn't work. It's like, oh, well, my boss told me to do this and it didn't work. I knew it wasn't going to work. So, so, you know, better, better for them to come to me and say, Hey boss, I have this great idea. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm like, great. Show, let's, let's, let's start working on it. And, uh, I think if you, if you, that's where people thrive because they feel that they're, you know, they, they feel like they're bringing value and they feel like they're valued because their ideas are being valued. Yeah, that's so good. They, they feel like they're bringing value and they're being valued because their ideas are being valued. Um, in a big operation like like Godiva, how do you manage? Uh, how do you balance letting people fail, letting people choose their own, you know, take their own ideas and run with them, with all the streamlining and and um, you know, of an of an organization of that size, where I guess so much when when you get that size, a lot of what you're doing, I imagine, would be very um, process and systems would be. Uh, would get more and more and more important the larger you get. So how do you how do you balance those two things? Yeah, I, look, I think and I've done this in the last bunch of organizations. It's my job to define the rules of the game, right? So and so, I set the the guide rails for the organization for the operations, right? So this is how we're going to work. 
you know, so for example, when I got to uh, Godiva, there was a productivity program, but it wasn't very disciplined. So, you know, I've changed it. And, you know, we said, we're going to pull all the ideas from all the teams into one funnel and put it in one 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 area so that we can prioritize all the work. Hmm. We're going to meet as a team once a month, and then we're going to ideate once a quarter and uh, on each team. And you're, we're going to have monthly cost reviews with each team, and we're going to track against how they're doing. And so the ideas that they bring are their ideas. Yes. I just help them prioritize, right? So uh, I want yeah. people working on the million-dollar ideas, not the $35,000 ideas. And not that the $35,000 ideas aren't good. Um, they're, it's just that you know the million-dollar ideas are better, right? So how do I, Because there's limited resources, um, and, and so we want to make sure that everyone's focused on the right areas of the organization. And so just bringing uh, 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 the, the process to me is bringing discipline to the organization, not necessarily uh, taking away from their passion. It helps to me, the process helps uh, focus their passion in the right ways. Yeah, that's so true. It's, uh, um, I, I guess this is a bit of a philosophical question, um, but I'm, why do you think if we look at so many leaders around the world and we look at leadership the past, you know, 10 or 20 years, I feel like I hear so many people talk about what we're talking about here, but I really do see so many leaders struggle to do this in terms of really releasing people in their passion and, and, and leaders end up sort of strangling the life out of um, teams because they keep everything so controlled and people don't have that opportunity to fail and, and lead and stretch. What, what is it that you've seen, like why do you think this is such a challenge for leaders to do this well when it's so important? Um, that's a good question. You know, I think it's, it's always, it's, it depends also the environment that you work in, right? It's not always easy to get stuff done mm. if you don't have, like if the leaders aren't being managed that way either, right? So um, that's true. I, I also, I don't know, I think, you know, a lot of, times leaders uh there's a lot of smart people out there uh and and they got to the level that they are because how smart they are uh and you know the 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 realization is to me is it's not only it's not just about you right you have to you have to figure out how do you collectively because collectively we're always smarter uh yes 40 people are going to have a lot more ideas than one person and so it's harnessing those those folks and those ideas, and not always it doesn't always come out that way. I think the other thing is I think what I mentioned earlier is uh, it's 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 those expectations of what people know. Uh, you know, you got to your level and your position because of what you know and, and what your experiences were, and you can't assume that everybody in the organization or the people that work for you have those same experiences or have the same knowledge that you have so it's your job as a leader to help them uh, bridge that divide mm. yeah I, I i think um there's can you some... hear me okay i'm just making sure that i uh yeah uh, my, my computer's starting to lose power i have to plug it in yes yeah no i can i can hear you okay no worries um yeah so that's i think you made some really good points there for for a leader, when, when it comes to investing in their people and, and setting expectations and um, just generally developing people, I know it's not formulaic, but I like to sort of always try to narrow down 
and and get people to sort of, <laughs> sort of prioritize one idea. If you had to, if someone was sitting across from you over a coffee and said, "Okay, Pablo, just give me one like one thing. If you could only do one thing um, to go into an organization that would really impact the people development, what what do you think it would be? One idea, one initiative, one uh, yeah, what one thing? If you had to pick one, what would it be? Oh boy! Uh, look, I, I'm, I can't do one. I'm going to give you two, and I'm going to cheat on this question. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so I and I think it. There's two things, and the reason I'm going to say there's two, especially if you're looking at a large organization like my own. Uh, and and look, I didn't come up with this stuff. I always feel like you know I, I learned from better teachers in the past. Um, there's a book called Toyota Kata. I don't know if you've read it read it at all. No, I haven't. Um, no. But it. But it talks about the Toyota. Everyone talks about Toyota manufacturing. Everyone tries to replicate it. They come out of there similar to what I've mentioned before with the tools that Toyota uses, but still not understanding how to build a house. And Kata is uh, really explaining the mindset of the leadership in Toyota, where every day the, the, the supervisors that are on the floor are meeting with all their operators you know, multiple times a shift and, and, and basically asking them about their performance. How are they performing today and uh, versus their targets and are they delivering against their targets? And it sounds very simple um, and very formulaic. Um, and you go, well, shouldn't all supervisors do that? Uh, and the answer is yes, but most don't. Most are fighting fires. And, you know, when they don't have to fight a fire, they, they come up for a breath and say, ah, and so they're not focused on improvement. Um, and so one, I think to me, uh, in the last multiple organizations that I've been in, that's been critical, is teaching the frontline supervision, the ones that have affect the most amount of people in the organization, how to challenge the teams on the floor on what their targets are, making sure that they're engaging their teams uh, in the business and making sure that every person in the, in the company is engaged in delivering better results for the company. So I think there's a, there, and I, I call that the bottoms up approach, is making sure that the bottom, the, the organization that has the most people are, are effectively armed to be successful, because that's where you're gonna make the most amount of improvement on a regular basis. The second thing is the top down approach, and, and you know, if you've read the book, Measure What Matters, yes. um, you know, it talks about OKRs, and how do you set those objectives and key results for everybody in the organization and making sure that they cascade throughout the organization. Mm. And so, you know, I, I kind of like, uh, if, if you want to build a tunnel, uh, you know, uh, uh, correctly, you always start on one end and, and try to dig to the other. But if you want to make it fast, you have to start on both sides. And so I think you start top down with OKRs and bottoms up with the Toyota Kata process. And I think that's been uh, my recipe for success recently. Yeah, I think that's, uh, uh, I love uh, the OKRs and, and Measure What Matters and, and uh, it's a great book. And I haven't uh, read the uh, Toyota Kata um, book, but it sounds like a, a great read. And I think you've just, uh, yeah, I think that's just a brilliant uh, couple of ideas that work together and I love the tunnel analogy. Let's Let's break it down because I have to admit I'm a bit of a, uh, a bit of a uh, leadership nerd when it comes to this stuff. I really love hearing how people are doing the, uh, you know, when it comes to OKRs, I think one of the things for me is these sort of ideas, it's so easy. I've been in the, in, 
in my shoes before where I've, I've actually experienced, yeah, this is great. And then I go to do it and I go, oh, okay, how do I actually do this? So for people out there, let's, let's unpack both of these ideas a bit more because I can hear that you, I, I think you, um, you do these really well. So let's start with the bottom-up approach. If you were coming to a new team um, and you were going to implement this, I, I guess from a more granular approach, what, what would it look like? What do the conversations look like? Yeah, can you give us a bit more of a breakdown of how you would lead that in terms of getting that Toyota Cutter approach of the uh, getting your feedback coming up? Yeah, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> so um, I, I always say it's, uh, it's the, the idea of teaching people. So the problem isn't necessarily, uh, so, so for example, at Ventura Foods, we did this and we were very successful. That was the last company that I was in. Yeah. Um, and we had an L&D team there. And, uh, you know, at the time, uh, they, they, they had just launched the L&D team. And I was like, perfect, we're going to create these new processes. And uh, I need you to help teach the teams these new processes. Um, and everyone knew we needed to train our frontline supervisors. They just didn't know how to do it. So we, we learned, we took the Toyota Kata approach, right? And, yes. uh, and, and, and sort of showed them what it meant to do this every day. Mm. The problem is you can't, it's, you can't just do it by yourself because if the managers aren't walking the process with them, um, then, you know, in the end, it's just a paper exercise because no one's checking and no one's coaching the supervisor that we need to do the approach. So we, we also had to do, we also had to implement a daily walk for the, uh, for the, for the leadership team in the plant. And, you know, uh, setting expectations for the managers and plans to calibrate their supervisors. So it was, in, um, we called it a layered audit process, which was helpful because it ended up being the acronym of a lap. And so <laughs> when we said, go take a lap, it meant, you know, go walk around and coach your employees. And, and the expectation is you do three laps a day. And so initially it became, uh, you know, we put it on paper and we wanted people to uh, exercise the, do the exercise in the process and write it down. And we kept it in books on the floor so we could reference them and the managers could go reference them. And even mm. I, when I did my quarterly business reviews at every plant, part of my responsibility was auditing the process and making sure that I could, I walked with a supervisor. They showed me how they did it. I walked with the manager. I taught, I was, and the uh, manager's teams and showed them my expectations. And so you got to, uh, it's, 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 it seems easy, but when you have like, for example, at Ventura Foods, I had 3,200 people that worked in the organization mm. and you know, I want to say it was like 400 supervisors. Yeah. You have to sit and make sure, uh, that everyone's being, that the next level up is calibrated and they're coaching their teams specifically too, because, you know, with 3,200 people and I have, let's say 500 supervisors, that means, you know, those supervisors have to do uh, eight laps a day, but then with them, then there's, you know, maybe 200 managers. So the managers have to do their laps and then there's, you know, or maybe a hundred managers. And so it's easier at the hundred manager level, but the, the, where the rubber meets the road is the lowest level of the organization. Yeah. And so me setting the example, walking through it quarterly, I was part of the training. So I would go physically to the trainings to make sure people understand how important this was. This wasn't just the HR trained process. This was coming from the top of the organization yeah. and what it meant to be successful. Um, and then giving them the reasons why it needed to be successful, right? So um, I, I keep telling, you know, I had 
um, we had 14 plants in, in Ventura Foods. And I kept trying to explain to people, look, if you're successful here doing this process, then I know you can be successful anywhere. And so the people who are going to be promoted are going to be the people who are successful in the process that we've defined. Yeah. Uh, because I am comfortable that if you're great at what you do here and you're doing it through our process, that you can take those learnings and bring it to another plant. Um, and by the way, because I have 14 plants, I may not have a production manager position open tomorrow in Waukesha, but I have a production manager position probably open three times a year somewhere in my organization. And so um, if you want that job, I can get you that job, but you have to prove that you're the best out of the couple hundred supervisors that are that are competing for that role. Yeah, so how do you how do you do accountability for that sort of level of um, doing the walk walk arounds and so there's modeling it yourself, there's turning up to the training. I love that. Um, but how do you how do you and how did you do accountability in terms of making did you make it part of KPIs? Um, I'm just interested how you what what processes you use to to hold people accountable to bring that process in and make sure it happened? Yeah, over time we did. Um, you know, initially we didn't because we didn't want it to be a punitive thing, right, or just measuring. Yeah. And I also didn't want people just filling out paperwork because, uh, you know, Pablo told them to fill out paperwork, right? Uh, I think people get sometimes too wrapped up into, oh, I have to do three walks a day and I'm going to get dinged if I don't make my three walks a day. So, uh, what we did do is we automated the process. So we, we gave everyone iPads um, and they could do the laps in the iPads. And not only that, they could take their follow-ups in the iPad. And so if an idea came out of it or an issue, a correction came out of it, they could document in the iPad. They could also escalate those to their manager uh, or to the daily management meeting or to the the gap closure calls, which was all additional steps of the process that we put in. And so I could measure not only how many times people are doing their laps, but I could also measure how many corrective actions they're coming up with, how many corrective actions they're completing, how many ideas they're generating from the floor, um, you know, how many uh, 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 issues they've corrected. And so um, what we would do is then uh, we would take those scores and, and sort of talk to everybody and make it part of our one-on-one -on -one sessions, right? So if yes. I'm talking to a manager, I'm looking at their supervisors and comparing them to everyone else and saying how well their performance is on, thing, on certain things and why aren't they achieving it. So I'm holding the manager accountable to making sure he's walking with his teams and giving them, and giving them their feedback. The managers are then using that information to give back their one-on-one. -on -one. So it became a, a good feedback mechanism. You, you do have to be careful with that uh, uh, because I, and I'd say is you first set the expectations and start showing people how to do it and walk the walk and expect the training. Then later on you start measuring what you don't want to happen is people, because these are sort of soft metrics, right? They're not efficiency, labor cost, uh, waste cost, uh, or whatever, which are easy understood. Um, how many times you walk the floor can easily be sort of manipulated in a system. <laughs> and so it's important that, uh, the, 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 that the, the KPIs don't overcome the fact that, like, are people doing the quality work? So it's, it's making sure you walk with them and, and audit the process and make sure it's done correctly and not just hope that the metrics drive you to the right answer. 
Yeah, well, that's a good segue into OKRs because I know that um, uh, is it John? How, how do you pronounce his last name? John uh, John uh, Doer, um, from, who wrote Measure What Matters. I know he talks about quality and quantity as uh, it, particularly in the key results part of that, and I think you you've unpacked that a little bit already there because you're saying um, measurement. Measurement is what you use to help reinforce the process, but when you're creating the process, you really do want it. You do want it to come from the why. You do want it mm -hmm. to come uh, from a place where people understand it. You do want to train exceptionally well so that there's, I guess, a bit of an effortlessness to it and, and automate it, and then the measurement comes in to help reinforce it, which I think is some is some great advice. If we talk about OKRs now. For those listening who don't know what OKRs are, do you want to give a, just a bit of a, a breakdown of, of um, that idea and then how how you would use that from a top-down approach? Yeah, I mean, the idea of OKRs, and I've heard it you know, even before John Dora's book uh, in different ways, uh, and I've used it in different ways before that, um, uh, but it's really setting from a top-level the objectives and key results of the organization. And then everyone behind that then setting their own objectives and key results that support the top level's results. So from everywhere in the organization, I should be able to link how that person's results are going to link to uh, the, the business results for the organization. And so, you know, uh, I may set uh, for the organization that we need to, deliver, you know, uh, reduction in safety, an improvement in quality, um, a, a cost per pound improvement on, on, a, on our conversion cost. And then uh, that may link to my CI team, then they're going to work on, uh, you know, driving a, con uh, a productivity program that saves, you know, three to five percent savings uh, across the organization. Um, it may link to my production team, my plant management team, and looking at their cost per pound or reducing waste or whatsoever. So it's it's cascading down the objectives and the key results and letting everyone sort of figure out how to do it. I, I think Pepsi UVs did this the best because, mm. um, and this was even before the book OKRs came out, but at Pepsi, I, at the time I was there, it was very clear. The organization wanted 3% growth in volume, 3% improvement in, in pricing, and 3% reduction in cost. <laughs> and so uh, that was sort of the top level objectives. And so then we would cascade down, okay, what is, how do I translate that for my team? Yeah. Uh, um, and then, and so then my team would take my objectives and say, okay, how do I translate? And I would work with my team to say, okay, here's my objectives. Um, how does that work for you? And how do, how do you make sure these are uh, successful? And so normally what I do is I take the overall uh, uh, OKRs for the organization, list them on the side, then list my objectives for my team, and then I, I list everybody on the top. And so my entire team can see everybody's objectives and we're crystal clear about where everybody's going to deliver and we're all aligned. And we have a conversation once a year to say, is that the right level? Should we, you know, should this person have more of this and less of this? And, and we have the debate openly. Um, yes. And so that everyone's feels good about, hey, do we feel like everybody's working for the same goals here in the organization? You know, because, you know, we probably all have worked in an organization where we don't feel everyone's, uh, you know, that, that, you know, that this person may not be working for the same goals as this person might be. <laughs> and so 
And that's where politics forms. And I want to try to dissipate that as much as possible. I want uh, transparency as to what we're all trying to achieve. And so just getting practical uh, or, or even more even more practical and a bit more granular, how how many OKRs would you normally have for yourself um, as in, in a role like you're in, you know, now as the uh, chief supply chain officer? Um, how many how many OKRs do you normally have for yourself for your team? And then how many do each of your team members normally have for their teams? I wish I was better at this. So I would say normally <laughs> you don't want to have more than like four or five. Yeah. I think we always end up with like seven to 10. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. um, and especially at, 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 at like, it's, it's harder when you're up a level in the organization. So even if you don't have seven or 10, I, I think sometimes we end up grouping them together. So, you know, seven or 10 become five, but reality is like, well, we grouped quality and safety into the same OKR. So, <laughs> Um, it's, it's, you know, it, when you run a large organization, there's a lot of things that you got to go attach, but lower in the organization, especially like if you're a, a supervisor or frontline supervisor, shouldn't be more than three. Yes. Um, I think we want to always try to limit things to about three to five at, at, at max. And that's just to be clear, that's three to five, uh, objectives that have key results that come off them. Yeah. 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 And have you found, obviously, you've got the principles that, you know, in measure what matters about uh, making sure your key results are specific. I think I think he talks a lot around, uh, you know, a say, or I can't remember if it's in the book or elsewhere about if you don't have a specific number, then it's not a key result. Like someone was saying that in terms of being quite fanatical about it and needing to have a, a specific number on it, which I actually think there's there's some wisdom to that. But is there anything that you've learned about constructing these in a way that, that tends to, to work well? If people out there are going, oh, I love this idea of OKRs and they want to go and read the book and, and put it into practice, anything you've learned about how to help teams actually articulate this in a way that sets them up for a win? Well, I've had more arguments about this with HR than anybody else, I think. <laughs> uh, I do, I'm, I'm a very sort of, I, I like numbers, right? So, yeah. Uh, so in general, what, like what I told you about, like I set up my team's objectives, um, and their, uh, their, their key results and expectations. And so usually I have them on a spreadsheet. I list out the numbers that they're expected to deliver. And then I give them a, and I weight each objective, uh, differently on a percentage basis. Um, I'm getting very technical here. Nice. And, right. That, and, uh, then yeah, I awesome. and then I, then I color code them. Basically I try to give them, uh, so when we, the way I like to do it is I give them a, a, a raw number as to how they're performing, uh, you know, every time, every <laughs> quarter when we meet about the expectations. And generally they know, like uh, they track their numbers well, so they know exactly how they're performing. So, yeah. you know, most of the, 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 my great team players can tell me where their opportunities are and where their strengths are. Yeah. But the reality is, and, and I think I know this more than anybody else is, um, I let the numbers take me one direction. Um, and certainly performance is based on, you know, how the, the results of the organization, but there's sometimes you can't control the numbers, right? We just mm -hmm. had a, uh, well, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, hopefully coming out of it. Um, yeah. no one predicted a global pandemic was going to happen. No one knew what that was going to do, the numbers. And so you can't just say, oh, well, you know, I don't care about the global pandemic. <laughs> these numbers are what they are, right? So you have to give people 
sway in some of that stuff. Um, the other piece of it is, you know, uh, and that's sort of the, a really macro level view, but yeah. there's minor things that happen that aren't necessarily the fault of the leader. Um, so I always sort of say, okay, I, I'm going to weigh out the numbers and generally they fall, uh, you know, it, I, I, you know, we have a scale generally of like a one to five rating for a person. Yes. And so more, more or less, most of the time they fall somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's always a, a pretty good distribution curve. And so I also can see is, am I being too, uh, 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 am, am I too, am I too aggressive in the numbers or am I too conservative in numbers or my numbers are, are weighted too high or too low. But then I always sort of say uh, the how is up to me, right? So I can, if someone ends up at a 3.5 based on how, uh, I, I, I have the, uh, the the flexibility as a manager to say they're a four or they're a three, right? So are they on yes. above performance, above target performance, or are they uh, on target performance? And that's really based on, uh, you know, the the way they show up as a leader, and, and that's yes. more uh, less less subjective and more objective in my mind. So there's got to be a good mix of both subjectivity. I'm sorry, it's more it's more yeah more uh, subjective than objective. But so it's got to be a mix of both objective measures and, and, and subjective measures. Have you found uh, many experiences where someone's hitting a five in terms of the numbers, but as a leader, you feel like they're really only showing up um, as a one or a two? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's ever a one or a two, right? So uh, <laughs> I've certainly had people... Uh, and, and so I'll, I'll, you know, like I'll, I'll be frank with you, you know, if you're delivering the numbers and I have, I've had these conversations where people are over delivering the numbers and I'll say, Hey, look, you know, you should have been in a above target, but, or, or, or a, a, you know, a five in performance, but I'm giving you a four. Uh, and this is the reasons why, because I don't feel like, you know, the, you're, you're, you're not doing this. You're not doing this. You're not doing what I expect you. You're hitting all the expectations but you're not doing it the way we want you to do it. And here's the things I need you to fix. And believe it or not, sometimes those conversations are harder than someone getting a below target performance. Um, and I, and I've I tell them at the same time is, look, you, can, you have to keep up this level of performance to continue to get a four. You don't be, you know, if, but if your performance falls below, then your numbers are going to be weighted down if you yeah. don't fix the things I've asked you to. So you may be a four today, and next year, because, you know, a lot of times uh, results can be lucky, you know. Yeah. Uh, next year, if you're a three on target performance, you're going to be weighted down to a two if you don't change the behaviors that are underlying, that are creating me to believe that you're not the right leader for the role. Um, and so uh, a lot of times people fix it. A lot of times people don't know how to fix it. Um, and over time, their performance strips because everyone, no one has perfect years every year, right? It just, it's, it's, a, it's almost impossible for that unless you're setting way too conservative objectives. Yeah, and that's what I love about OKRs. I love uh, the, the way that um, OKRs are based on uh, sort of stretch, you know, having this idea of st stretch goals, having this uh, accountability, and, and particularly the ownership because people are so involved in coming up with them. And I, I, I have a bit of a theory around why those conversations are harder, like you're saying, with, with people when 
Uh, sometimes the conversations where they've performed at a five, but you have to tell them it's a it's a four. It, the results are a five, sorry, but the way they're doing some things it makes it a four. And it's because, in my experience, when when you have people where you're saying to them, look, the way you're doing things, it's not a five, it's a four. Often you're talking about uh, how people, um, you know, how people are as team players, how they communicate, how they how they lead people, which sometimes isn't as obvious in the results as as other things. And I feel like those those things which come to vulnerability and humility. Um, and I, I love uh, Patrick Lencioni's Ideal Team Player book because he talks about those three three traits of an ideal team player: humility, hunger, and people smart. Well, he says smart, but I, I you know people smart that idea of emotional intelligence. And if you look at those three, hungry is the one where uh, you know it's sometimes people really tick that. But two, if two out of the three are are areas of growth where someone is really, you know, struggles with humility. They're not good at admitting they made mistakes. They're they're not, um, you know, they're not great at uh, letting letting people in. They they, you know, there's a struggle with humility. And if there's a struggle with the people, smart emotional intelligence, and they they don't quite catch it if they're actually offending people or they're not necessarily getting to know and connecting their with their people well. That I think can often be the person, in my experience, where you go, your, your results are a five, but actually, in terms of how you're doing X, Y, and Z, it's a four. And then the recipe, I, I think why this becomes such a challenge is that's the person who's going to not have seen it. That's often the person, like with humility, I feel like if you lack humility, it's actually a blind spot, like pride. If there's any sort of pride that comes from any sort of reason where it, it, it actually blinds you. So it's this like... Um, it's a it's a bit of a vicious cycle because it's the the very people that are, that are going to end up in that situation are the ones who are least likely to be self aware about it, and so that's where you might end up. Certainly, in my experience, anyway, you end up with people where you go, "I assumed you would have seen this in some way," but they're quite caught off guard because they haven't seen it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I love Patrick Lencioni, and and he talks about humble, hungry, and smart, and the, if you don't have the humility piece, it, the rest is sort of irrelevant. Like that's the, <laughs> the one that's, you know, when he's, when he's cornered, he'll tell you that's the most important one. That's um, right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, you know, learning, and I think that's the hard part. And, and you asked earlier about like why, uh, why people don't sort of understand the empowerment of the organization. And I think mm. it is because people lack that humility in the end. Like you have to believe that, uh, your team is going to be the ones that deliver the results. The, the Your job as a leader is to get them to deliver the results. I, I've had leadership teams tell me in the past that, uh, you know, and, and I, I've heard this before from a leadership team, and I'm not going to say who it was, but they said, you know, the reason we got the results is because of uh, the capability of the leadership team, despite the, the, the capability of the team below us. And I'm like... <laughs> You know, you got that totally backwards. The reason you got the results is because of the the team below you, despite the arrogance of this team here at, at the at the top level, um, yeah. and and the, their failure to recognize that as uh, as leaders, you know, uh, that they were really the ones causing the problems. But um, yeah, it's a, it's an, it's an interesting uh, book. It's uh, I love Patrick Lencioni's. I'm actually taking uh, my team out uh, as uh, one of our. Offsites, and and we're walking through the five dysfunctions of a team, 
because uh, I think you know uh, he's probably one of the uh, the better sort of leadership teamwork kind of building uh, 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 author I've, I've read in my life. Yeah, I would agree. He's definitely my um, my favorite uh, author in in that space. I, I just find um, it's the the working genius is um, the the recent assessment that's come out of the table group. Uh, have you have you come across that yet or used that yet? I. I've heard, I've read, I've listened to his podcast so far. I've not gotten the the, the latest stuff from uh, Patrick Lynch from his books, but I'm 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 excited to get it and use it as an assessment tool for, because usually my second uh, big offsite is first is the five dysfunctions of the team. The second is sort of let's do a team assessment and see where we are and generally yes. use Myers Briggs. Um, and so I'm excited to use Patrick Lencioni's tools to see okay where where do we fall and understand it better too, but. I think it's important for everyone to understand what motivates everyone. And I think we were saying that before, right? Everyone's different as an individual. So how do you make sure that you find the right passions for that person? And yeah. how do you make sure that the teams are engaging people correctly um, to make sure everyone's working at their top performance? Yeah, it's working genius is fantastic. I, um, it's just like the five dysfunctions of a team, actually, in terms of I can't put my finger on why it's so good. But you know how the five dysfunctions of a team gives you these five you know, vulnerability, conflict, commitment, accountability, uh, results, or, you know, um, breeds individual ego in attention to results at the top. It gives you, it's, it's not so much the framework. I still haven't worked out why I, I think it, they're so good compared to other things, but it's, the, it's how applicable they are as handles for a team. I, I just feel like, and it's the same with the working genius. I, I've sort of done it with, uh, I've been doing that with teams now and, and um, I've so enjoyed it because the, once again, it's a bit like the five dysfunctions. You start it and it's like any other assessment and, and you go, oh, well, but then the richness of how people grab onto it and then three months later, the conversations you have and you find out how people have actually used it is is a real game changer. Uh, and to be honest, I wasn't sure when I first came across it, I was I was like, oh, when I first heard about it, but now that I've I've used it, um, I I I do sort of swear by it. It's definitely become uh, one of my favorite um, tools to use because of the handles. It's just like once you do it, people have. And he talks about this in the podcast. If people, uh, if listeners uh, want to find out more, there's a great podcast called The Working Genius uh, Podcast where Patrick Lencioni focuses specifically on this new assessment that they really believe is some of the most important work they've ever done at the table group. Um, there's also the the table group uh, podcast with Patrick Lencioni at the table with Patrick Lencioni, two brilliant podcasts, um, but working genius. I, I think they're right. I honestly think it's as significant as they believe it is. And it's because it taps into something where I, all the assessments I've done, I feel like the one weakness is often the split second. How do I apply that? How do I apply that assessment to this go? You know, that instantaneous, is this a yes or a no for you personally and for a team? And the working genius has that, and um, it's 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 really profound. Anyway, I've just given a little uh, spiel for the working genius there because I'm I'm a bit of no, a I think it's, only mega fan. Yeah, uh, so am I. And and honestly, I think it's it's uh, it gives people a common language to use, which is always sort of the hard part, right? It's it's making sure people understand what behaviors uh, we have and and how to call them out the right way. Um, um, yeah, but do it and, and to me that's like an important breakthrough for a team is is understanding where 
our opportunities are. I think the best, like when I've put teams together, uh, the strongest teams uh, I've ever seen is when each team member, the people that work for me, help each other, right? So when they see someone uh, having a behavior that's not that's not successful, they're calling them up after the meeting and saying, hey, let me give you some feedback. It's not just me. It's the entire team going yes. and holding that person up and trying to make sure that that person is successful. And that's so hard to achieve. Um, and uh, yeah. but it's it's magic when it happens. It's like it's like in a uh, video game where you sort of unlock the next level. Is 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 like that? I feel like when you're when you're in the when you're operating a team where that's not happening, you sort of look at it and you go, huh. But then when you're in an experience, and this is what I always tell teams, I say, you know, it is possible. Uh, it's that Patrick Lencioni phrase that he talks about with building a healthy team. It's both possible and remarkably simple, but it's painfully difficult. And it is like to get there is painfully difficult because you have to walk through, uh, you know, often <laughs> I know for me anyway, when you're trying to do conflict well and have robust discussions, you've got family of origin, you've got um, some of us pick up, you know, uh, passive aggressive rather than being direct. And you've got to unlearn some of these things and you've got to practice going there and actually risking it and being vulnerable. But the win on the other side is like that unlocking a level where, and you're right, I reckon that is one of the biggest pieces of fruit. If you want to see this happening, it's because the people on the team, not just the leader, will call each other up after a meeting and give some feedback. That is that is such rich soil for uh, a team and an organization. I feel like you, you just go to a whole other level when you've got that going on. Yeah, I, that happened to me recently. Uh, I had a team, one of someone that was working for me, he was just, you know, it went off the rails in a meeting and, and two of his peers called him right after the meeting and said, Hey, let me give you some feedback and do that. And I found out about it afterwards. And, uh, I, you know, certainly I gave the, the, and I, I, when I called the, 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 that, that person up and get, was giving him my feedback, he's like, yeah, I know this person called me and this person called me. <laughs> and so then I doubled back and called the other two guys. And I'm like, I am so excited that you guys called your yeah. peer and helped them out and picked them up and told him what he needed to do different next time. And I said, that is exactly the behaviors. And so encouraging those behaviors is the best I could do in that standpoint. But I think nothing made me more proud than the fact that those guys went and tried to help out uh, a peer of them to be successful. Um, and they're not, you know, like, and I, like I've been in organizations where that happens and people are like, Oh, thank God that wasn't me. <laughs> <Thank God. laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like just oh, you know, where do I look right now? I'll just um, yeah, ex yeah. This, this is, is just bloody. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's right. Stepping in and and um, and uh, I, you know, once again, Patrick Lencioni says this. I just love everything he does. But um, he talks about this idea of you know peer to peer accountability in a team <laughs> and the beauty of the fact that as a leader, when you're not willing to hold your people accountable, your team are going to go. Well, I'm not going to do it for you, and so yeah. You, you end up needing to do more accountability. So the yeah. less the less willing you are, the more you're likely going to need to have difficult conversations, which is yeah. which is brutal. But if you are willing to step in and go there, uh, particularly uh, you know in this idea of picking small battles and going there in, in the little things and stepping into the uncomfortable, awkward you know sort of moments as a, as a as a leader of the team, your people are going to go. Oh, okay. Well, if if you're willing to to bleed, you know, to actually be vulnerable, to go there, then I'll step up and do it too. And so 
ironically, you then often need to do less of the accountability and difficult conversations if you're willing to do them, which I just oh, yeah. find <laughs> as someone who really hates having those conversations, that's a great carrot for me to, yeah. you know, to go, no, 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 I do need to do this for a number of reasons. And one of them is that doing this and stepping into it is actually going to mean I, I probably need to do this less uh, because I'm well, going to well, help create a culture where this can happen. It's funny you say that because I think like no one, and it, you know, Patrick Winslow says this well too, is no one likes the conflict, but if you don't have the conflict, the behaviors don't change. Mm. And so, um, it, it, you know, you, you, what you can't allow as a leader is to have bad behaviors on your team continue. Um, and I've made those mistakes too, right? So uh, I think we all have in our past and you realize, man, I should have had much more uh, difficult conversations or made more difficult decisions uh, yeah. because uh, that created more problems on my team than necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I agree. I've definitely experienced that. Uh, well, Pablo, this has been uh, just a joy. I've, I've so enjoyed this. Did you want to give any uh, sort of final thoughts for listeners as we wrap up? No, I mean, it's, this has been a pleasure. Thanks, Jono, for inviting me. And, and uh, you know, we'll talk soon, I guess. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, I really, we really appreciate you listening in. I know for a fact you would have gotten uh, so much out of today. And I reckon there's a fair chance we have created some new Patrick Lencioni fans, which is always a good thing too, <laughs> because I do truly uh, deeply believe in his work. Um, but thank you to all of our listeners. Really appreciate you and, uh, and what you're doing as leaders in all different parts of the world, all different uh, sectors. And I just want to come back to, to Pablo Casati and, and just say thank you again and uh, want to reiterate how much of a pleasure it's been chatting about all things leadership today and, and for me learning, learning a bunch of things as well. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and being so generous with your time, Pablo. Oh, thanks for having me. Today's leadership question has helped you in your leadership and put a stone in your shoe. That's what, I, that's what I love to say is that my role, I believe, working with leaders is about putting a stone in your shoe. So something you were really comfortable with, now you're walking a little bit uncomfortably going, mm, is there a better way to do this? How do I handle this? And uh, that's because no growth is comfortable. So uh, I hope that's okay. I appreciate you taking the time. I don't take it lightly. And if you are just joining us, then make sure you check out our website, consultclarity.org, consultclarity.org. We have so much free content on there for you, including the seven questions on leadership series. So more than 1,500 leaders around the world, different roles, different sectors have filled out the seven questions on leadership in-depth answers on how they lead, what they've found most challenging, how they structure their time, what book or books have been most significant for them. There is so much gold on there. You could go and, and basically live in that part of our website for a few weeks, I think. Uh, so make sure you go and check that out. It's free. And hey, we would love to interview you for our uh, seven questions on leadership series. Your leadership, based on your, uh, you know, your context, your life, and your experience, I believe that you can bring something that other leaders can learn from. I, I truly do, and so it's completely free to get involved. It's a great way to give back if you're loving this content, and you can do that by going to consultclarity.org 
forward slash seven dash questions dash interest or just Google consultclarity.org seven questions interest and then click on the page, fill out the form to express your interest and we can get you going to fill out the seven questions on leadership. We also have a free resource on our website. It's right at the top, consultclarity.org on our homepage and it's called the Leadership Survival Guide. It's a 57-page ebook with interviews uh, from 10 world-class leaders and it's right there for you to download. It's completely free and awesome resource. It's very popular, so check that out. We also have a daily email, and I know that our more than 15,000 leaders who subscribe get a lot of value from that. We highlight the best content from our blogs, from our podcasts, uh, from our books and books we're reading. It also gives you exclusive and limited access and early access to our masterclasses and workshops. So uh, I really try to make it something as helpful and as valuable as possible. That's my commitment. And so go to consultclarity.org forward slash subscribe if you're interested in all things leadership and you can become part of that community. Now, my gift to you with everything we're doing, particularly with this podcast, the Leadership Question of the Day, is to work really hard to provide uh, the best leadership content to invest in you and your leadership. Your gift to me would be this. If you're finding this helpful, if this helps you in your leadership, then there is something you can do that makes a massive difference, and that is to write a review or rate our content. Wherever you're listening or watching, rate our content, write a review, make sure you subscribe or follow. It might seem small to you to do that, but it adds up and it helps us to help more leaders become the best they can be. It also means a lot to me personally whenever I see you sharing our content, so thank you so much for that. If you do share it on social media, then look for me, John O. White, and try to tag me and look for clarity and tag us, and I promise we are always looking for content shared by our community. When people share our content, we're looking to engage with you. And we, you know, there's also a chance that we may actually share what you write uh, as, a, as a post with our, with our followers. So if you do that, there's a chance you'll be shared as well. Last of all, you can check out my book called Step Up or Step Out, How to Deal with Difficult People Even If You Hate Conflict. I wrote this book because more than 50% of the leaders I coach, 50% of the sessions, sorry, where I coach leaders, this comes up again and again and again. And it's leaders saying, Jono, how do I deal with this difficult person? Or how do I deal with this person? And I'm finding it so difficult. We're just on a different wavelength. And that's because difficult conversations are uh, difficult. And I find this is one of the biggest challenges for leaders in the world today. And that's where Step Up or Step Out is a three-step process to help you deal well with difficult people. Uh, I really believe it's a book that can help you in your leadership. So go and check that out. It's on Amazon, Step Up or Step Out, John O'White, uh, if you just look that up. Or go to store.consultclarity.org forward slash book and you can get it there. Well, thank you so much for listening. We're going to be back with a new episode of the Leadership Question of the Day next time. I hope today has helped you take another step towards becoming everything you're meant to be. We'll see you next time.